Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're sitting down with a Democratic assemblyman who was an ER doctor before being elected to represent the Central Valley in 2016. That's right. State Assemblyman Joaquin Arambula is here. If his name sounds familiar, you might be thinking of his dad, Juan Arambula, who previously represented Fresno and parts of the Valley in the Assembly. We're going to talk to the current assemblyman about his path to Sacramento and whether he's making plans for assembly speakership. We'll get there in a second, Scott. But first, uh, let's go to D.C., where the uh, president gave his State of the Union address this week. So, too. Surrounded by, Demo- uh, not Democrats, by Californians. Yeah, Right exactly. behind him, Kamala Harris, vice president, and new speaker Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. Dressed slightly differently than Nancy Pelosi used to. Yeah, for a little her. more muted colors, yeah. uh, I would say. But, you know, it was interesting. I mean, McCarthy, I think, uh, you know, he had that meeting with Biden about raising the de- debt ceiling uh, last week, I guess that was. And I think he's trying to set at least outwardly a tone of cooperation. I mean, they don't want to be seen as obstructionist. He did stand uh, and clap several Several times, and it was funny. I thought when Biden came up there, and you know, they he hand they hand a copy of the speech to the vice president and to the speaker. He seemed a lot happier to see Kevin McCarthy. Actually, he, like broke into this big smile when he saw <laughs> what him. happened in that. I think it was like a ninety-minute meeting, which is pretty long if you're not actually talking about anything, you know? So, I mean, they must have some sort of report. And I mean, you know, to be fair, in Sacramento, McCarthy was really known for being a likable guy. I mean, this was before Trump and the last yeah and know, he, i think even years. in washington i mean uh, for a lot of if you talk to people like how because you know he had a fairly quick rise uh, after he got elected and i think a lot of that is his personality his affability he's likable and mm-hmm. I, I think you know as i said kind of jokingly two irishmen you know you put him in in a meeting and they're going to have stuff to talk about and stories to tell probably before they get to policy and nobody wanted to leave the uh, chambers i heard some jokes about that but that was like the longest glad handing any president has ever done irish guy you got to drag him out of the bar yeah exactly um no but i mean i do think uh, colin harris seemed very happy to be in the limelight back there uh standing up clapping for for joe and i thought what was interesting was you did see some daylight. I mean, obviously, there's going to be daylight between McCarthy and some of his members. There's, it's a big caucus. But, you know, he tried to shush folks, a uh, very boisterous Republican side of of the room. Um, and I think on some of the policy stuff, he seemed a little bit caught, like, do I clap for this? Do I not? You know? Yeah. Well, I think Biden kind of made some fun, not of McCarthy, per se, but of the party, because they opposed the infrastructure bill. But he said, I'll see you at the groundbreaking, right. uh, which is something Pelosi <laughs> made fun of, yeah. you know, that, uh, hey, they love to be at the ribbon cuttings. <laughs> They'll take the money. They just don't necessarily want to vote for it. Speaking of Pelosi, we did see Paul Pelosi, former speaker's husband there, sitting next to Bono. Uh, 
which was sort of random. Uh, but, you know, he certainly seems to be on the mend, again, wearing a hat because of that um, horrible head injury he suffered in the attack at his home. Um, and, yeah, I thought it was interesting. I mean, for me, the bigger takeaway, obviously, it's great to see him there on his feet doing well. Um, and then to see his wife, Nancy Pelosi, now, like, she was a pundit on CNN after the speech. It's a real change right now. She is free, free at last to speak her mind. Yeah. And of course, you know, Paul Pelosi was seated next to Brandon Say, who was the one who disarmed that shooter down in Monterey Park, yeah. that terrible shooting down there just before the Half Moon Bay shooting. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, that whole idea of having the special guests who represent an issue or a kind of heroism goes all the way back to Ronald Reagan. I mean, he was the one that started that sort of symbolism, Michael Deaver, his image maker. And that is that is one part of Reagan's legacy that every president, mm-hmm. I think, has picked up and followed on. And it's it's kind of nice. Every It's the, it's very generally speaking, very inclusive, uh, you know, in terms of it's the kind of thing everybody can rally. No medals behind. of honor this year, though. Yeah, no medals of honor for Rush Limbaugh or anyone else. Uh, so the tone, obviously, that Biden yeah. sets and the issues he chooses – Gun violence, for example, probably not one that Donald Trump would have chosen. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, I think, you know, going into he, of course, his speech was all about working together, bipartisanship. We'll see. I mean, and obviously, the first big test is raising the debt ceiling. But, uh, you know, they got a lot done in the last go round. But, you know, coming into a presidential year, maybe a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I see them tweeting out there because he promised to show the receipts about Medicare and uh, Social Security. And Rick Scott, man, that, that Senate plan he put out. I think there's a lot of folks on the Republican side who are still mad about that. Um, all right. Before we come back uh, to our guest. This week, we did see a referendum qualify um, by, uh, well, you go ahead. Explain it, Scott. <laughs> this is the second big referendum that has uh, qualified for the November 2024 ballot. This one uh, focused on SB 1137, which uh, the legislature passed, the governor signed, and it uh, requires oil companies to do new drilling no closer than 3,200 feet from things like schools, child care centers, clinics, that kind of thing. That's about, that's about a, a little more than a half a mile, so like a mile radius, if you draw mm-hmm. the, the circle. Uh, obviously, the, the, the point uh, is that there is a lot of there are a lot of harmful effects uh, in the air that come near those refineries, childhood asthma, uh, heart disease rates, those kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, there's also and we're going to this will all be coming out during the campaign between now and November 2024. You know, there are a lot of potentially jobs at stake. So it's going to be, you know, environment and health versus economy and jobs. Gas prices will be thrown in there and, you know, all these other things. Uh, It's going to be a very lively, very expensive uh, uh, ballot measure for sure, as is the other one, which challenges the fast food bill that the governor signed to raise, uh, you know, improve working conditions for fast food workers and and salaries and wages as well. Yeah, we should say, you know, however you feel about either of those. I mean, for industry, part of whether or not they win or lose at the ballot box, they have they have succeeded in delaying these bills for many months or even years. And so I do think that that's part of the strategy here is, you know, even if we don't think the politics are great for us, let's put a pin in this for a while, give us more time. Uh, we should also mention the governor did call uh, for a federal probe of natural gas prices, particularly in Southern California in recent weeks and months. We've seen just soaring natural gas bills, really 100 percent, 150 percent more than last year. Um, And so it'll be fascinating to see kind of what federal regulators do and how they interplay. I mean, clearly the governor has been uh, taking some swings at the fossil fuel industry, which we'll talk to our guests about in a second.
Yeah. And of course, all that is happening as this special session is sort of underway and not much is happening. There are a lot of discussions happening between the governor's office and uh, the Senate uh, folks in particular uh, to impose a uh, penalty, not a tax, a penalty on excessive oil profits. A lot of disagreement, I think, on exactly, you know, where, how do you define it? How do you impose it? Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see if something, something, something has to come out of it just for the governor to save face, <laughs> totally. if nothing else, because if you have a special session and you got zip, that doesn't look so good. All right. Well, lots to talk about. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Fresno Assemblyman Joaquin Arambula. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are thrilled to welcome State Assemblyman Joaquin Arambula. He's a Democrat representing the Central Valley. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you, Marissa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we're very thrilled to have you. As we mentioned, you are from the Central Valley. You were born in Delano, the birthplace of the farm workers movement. And you moved to Fresno when you were six. I know your grandparents were farm workers. Tell us about growing up in the Valley. What was your childhood like? Mi padre fue el primero persona en nuestra familia que nació aquí en los Estados Unidos. <laughs> My father was the first of our family who was born here in America. My grandparents came from Los Altos in Jalisco. Nice. It's to the east of Guadalajara. My dad was born in Brownsville, the southernmost city in America, at a time when there was an anti-immigrant fervor. We had a president in Eisenhower who had... Uh, it was performing the largest mass deportation event in our country's history, which was Operation Wetback. And at a very young age, my father was two years old, as an American citizen was deported with wow. the rest of my family to a country that he did not know. Hmm. Wow. And that experience of seeing what immigrants go through in their pursuit of coming to America to make better for themselves and their family is something that I grew up with and know intimately. Mm. Our, go ahead. Tell us about your grandparents. I mean, how, how did they, what, what, I assume it was economic reasons they came to California, directly to California. Like, what were their circumstances? Well, we started in Texas. And when we got that welcome in Texas, we realized that there may be states that look towards those of us who are trying to make better of ourselves with a, a, a brighter light. 
And so California was that place. And my grandparents, uh, 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 Zacharias and Josefina, uh, Zacharias never went to a day of school. He never learned to write. He um, knew how to work hard and to be diligent and to provide for our family the opportunities that we grew up having. But that transfer of moving from Texas to Delano allowed my father to meet a visionary leader during that time and a young Cesar Chavez who told him to open his eyes to his true value and worth. It's why my father ended up applying and becoming one of the first handful of Latinos to ever go to Harvard. Really? I was going to ask how, I mean, because that is quite a path to go from. And so Cesar Chavez helped sort of encourage that. Well, it was a parable. It was a story. He was out uh, uh, like he oftentimes did during those days. He was trying to educate farm workers. And he was empowering them to own their story and to be proud of who they were. So your parents both met at Harvard, but I don't think your mom was from the Valley, right? No, my mom is from the East Coast. Uh, uh, she grew up in a Jewish family and um, had had some privilege to was also attending Harvard. Um, it was actually there that uh, uh, my parents met and my mom became pregnant with me. Okay. <laughs> and how, how did she feel about coming, yeah. you know, leaving the East Coast and coming to California and the Central Valley? Well, um, she had to leave college early because she was pregnant with me, having left one of the best universities we have in our country, to move in with immigrant uh, mother and father-in-law who, who didn't speak English. It, it was a, a big step for her. And yet in her efforts to move here, she also owned her story and how she was going to be able to help community. And that oftentimes is getting to know those who are around you every day. Did she graduate eventually? She uh, didn't at Mm. that time, but she has gone back and has had a law degree because she promised us children that she would uh, complete her education when the time was right for her as well. Mm. So you're parents then are, are back in Fresno. I know your dad was the first Latino ever elected county supervisor there, um, which seems kind of wild now, considering, you know, how much, how many Latinos are in powerful positions in the Central Valley. Uh, do you remember that first campaign? And, and I mean, I just wonder at the time, did you ever think you'd follow in those types of footsteps? I, I didn't think that was my path. I, I was always drawn to medicine. And okay. it's the uh, reason why I went to medical school and became a doctor and was able to come back. But I remember each one of those campaigns from the first one in 1986 when he ran for school board. Uh, was there for eight years, eight years then on uh, board of supervisors. And then he was in the assembly for six years. I mean, did you like that as a kid or was that hard? Were you like knocking on doors with him? Yeah. I was knocking on doors. I was out being an advocate. I was figuring out how to empower people. And um, I can remember specific campaigns, uh, whether it's Kathleen Brown in 1994. Um, right in the middle uh, of Prop 187. At the same time as yeah. Prop 187. And so those anti-immigrant fervors were not new and in large part helped to shape the type of legislation that I work on when I'm here in our state capitol as well. You um, obviously followed in your dad's footsteps. You went to college in Maine, and then you went to Minnesota, I think, for med school. Um, And then you practiced medicine in Selma, I think it was, California. Uh, Tell us about that, and how did you make that transition from medicine to politics? Selma is the raisin capital of the world, for those that are not familiar with the town. It's a town of 20 or 25,000. 
And in my 10 years of practice, I took care of 50,000 patients, mostly farm workers and agricultural workers and community members. And, and it was there listening to people's stories, hearing where systems were not working, hearing about the injustice and being unable to access health care through a myriad of reasons that I realized I needed to ask more of myself. I needed to do something different and to use different tools to solve the problems that were happening in my community. Hmm. And that led me to that realization, que yo no puedo ver a mi gente solo, that I cannot see my people alone, and I have to learn how to ask for help. And to come up to our state capital became the next logical step for me, knowing that here in our state capital, we have many of the levers that can impact and make communities like mine better and stronger. What do you miss the most about practicing medicine? Real empathy, being able to just care for your neighbor, ask how you can help. Hmm. Um, it, it, it's different. Every time you do something now in, in my shoes, people second guess or, or wonder why you're doing it. Hmm. And um, for 10 years, I just asked everyone who came in to see me what I could do to help them. Hmm. What did your dad say, the former politician, when you said, you know, I think I'm going to run for office? Well, he was um, protective as fathers are supposed to be. He reminded me that I have a young family. and um, Didn't he have a young family? When it was had? a big, <laughs> uh, it, it was a significant sacrifice. And have, having known what that sacrifice is like, I think he was reflecting and trying to provide advice. But he also knew that I had left a very lucrative career to be a public servant, and um, he felt that uh, it may be something I wanted to do later on in life and not necessarily at that time. Now, neither of us would have predicted that we had the pandemic of the century, and yet there was no better place for me to impact my community than being up here in Sacramento, where I was able to bring resources and vaccines back home to my community rather than seeing them one patient at a time. Yeah. Well, your dad kind of famously left the Democratic Party when he was an assemblyman. Um, after being frustrated, he became a decline to state. I know you were uh, a Democrat and then a decline to state and then switched back before running for office. I mean, what prompted that back and forth? And how do you describe your political identity now? I'm a proud Democrat. I really am. I'm moving our valley forward so we understand that Democrats are people who are taking care of our community members. That's how I always like to frame it, because government should work to improve the lives of those who you serve. And oftentimes, I think we forget that. You know, a lot of moderate Democrats, mod Dems, as we call them, sometimes are in the valley or you know, other parts of California away from the coasts. Can you think, you say you're a proud Democrat, and they're proud Democrats too, but are there things, positions that you espouse, you know, that perhaps is, makes moderate Democrats uncomfortable? Well, I, or for that matter, your constituents. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say we try and be sensible, and we are more centrist when we are in the Central Valley. We um, spend more time listening. It, it's been interesting. I got elected when Trump was president, and um, I share a city with Kevin McCarthy right now. And to what we realize in the Valley is we have to be able and are able to work with everyone to work across party lines and to figure out where we have alignment and what we can work on together. Hmm. Well, I want to ask about a couple of policy issues because you have split from um, 
you know, both your moderate and more progressive colleagues. And I'm just curious, like, for example, last year, um, you chose not to vote on a concealed weapons uh, law that was trying to essentially make up for uh, a law that's been struck down in California by the Supreme Court. You didn't vote on that. I know you didn't vote on the oil setback bill we're talking about. Um, Critics would say not voting on those bills is basically like voting no. Um, So I'm curious just to start, like, how do what do you think about when you're choosing whether or not to even weigh in on a controversial issue like those? I spend a lot of time really digging into the policy. I'm one of those working members who actually enjoys reading bills and spending time. Enjoys? I I, I actually do. (laughs) Uh, strangely, I'm, I'm one of those people who, who reads my handouts for my subcommittees. I pay attention. I, I do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, in my six years of subcommittee, I've never interrupted anyone. I believe we are the people's house and they need to be heard. And in that same way, I look at pieces of legislation and I'm trying to determine where my constituents would want me there mm-hmm. or not. And sometimes the right answer is not today, not this moment, that we need to have more discussions, that we have to deliberate and and figure out if these are the right policies. And that's how I would categorize it. Well, you know, coming from medicine, but also from the Valley, representing part of Kern County, which is an oil-producing county, um, you, as Marisa said, you didn't uh, vote on 1137, the setback law that's now going to be a referendum on the ballot. But So how do you how do you calculate all those different things because you've got the health impacts, which you're very familiar with as a doctor, but the economic impacts that the oil industry says will come, you know, if, if that, those setbacks are enforced. I'll use that as a specific example to be nuanced. So there was an administrative process to review and look at the science for what an appropriate distance would be. How many feet was it supposed to be? And this process of choosing a certain uh, number of feet uh, bypasses that administrative process of actually looking at the science and determining what's reasonable and what's feasible and what's uh, the smartest thing for us to do. I believed it was important for us to continue through that administrative process rather than uh, jumping ahead and presupposing we knew the answer, but actually to listen to the scientists and to hear them out. Why do you think they jumped ahead? Like, why didn't they do that? I think they were ready to make a decision and had the necessary number of votes to move it along. But oftentimes, if you um, are pushing that hard, we haven't had the ability to have the discussions and deliberations that are needed for the change that is also going to be required. I want to ask you about something sensitive, but it's out there and you know well, which is that you actually went to trial um, for a child cruelty charge. The DA uh, accused you of hitting your daughter. It was seven at the time. You were acquitted. Um, And I know that your defense really felt like it was a political uh, prosecution. Before we get there, I mean, how are you and your family doing? What has it been like for uh, to go through something like that, which must have been just... uh, Horrible for everyone, really. I mean, life is great today. I'll tell you that just this morning I was helping my daughter with her sixth grade homework, and it made me proud that I could still help her with yeah. it and, yeah. and accomplish it, right? Yeah. But, um, I have a seven, 10, and 11 year old. That's not easy for any family to go through. And yet at the end of it, I know that our family is better and stronger because of it. And right now, we're completely happy and excited that we get to spend more time together. 
you know, the- you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are talking to State Assemblyman Joaquin Arambula. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. The charges that were brought against you were brought by the Fresno DA, Lisa Smithcamp, and Governor Newsom has gotten into a real uh, back and forth with her. She's a Republican. Um, she accused him of having blood on his hands for the the death of a police officer in Selma. I'm wondering, do you th- think that she is politically driven? Do you think that's why those charges were brought against you? Well, if we use that example in Selma, I'll first start by saying that this is the first officer who's died in the line of duty in that city ever. And it really has shaken that community and he is not buried as of today. So for us to be having political discussions and to enter into it is a bit disrespectful for me in terms of who he is. But I'll answer your question, which really is around, should this person have been out to perform the crime that he did? And in my opinion, the answer is no, obviously. He had been uh, charged with 10 crimes, but plead pleaded down to only two. And because neither of those crimes were violent or with a weapon, even though there were those charges um, on the individual, he ultimately was allowed to have credits and was released earlier on. And so rather than getting into a blame game or who's responsible, I wish we would have allowed the family to appropriately grieve and allow the community to support them and um, would have had those discussions first. Can't imagine you're a big fan of that DA, though. Well, I, um, she's been elected, and uh, we find out how to work with everyone in our communities. I uh, will share with great pride that I've found a tremendous working relationship with the mayor of Fresno, our former police chief. Yeah, and you have to figure out how to put things off to the side and focus on the greater good and serving your community. All right. Well, let's talk brass, get down to brass tacks here. You have been <laughs> in the news lately um, because of the sort of ongoing debate over who should lead the assembly uh, when uh, come this summer. Uh, there was a vote in December for uh, Assemblymember Robert Rivas of Salinas to take over once uh, Anthony Renton, who will be termed out uh, and not too long, steps down. Um, before we get to you, where were you in that fight? Like, who did you vote for? What, who, who do you, who did you want or do you want to see be speaker? Well, I'll, I'll be clear about one thing at the start. I won't go through what we discussed in caucus or member to member discussions out of privacy towards. Sure. But what about you? What do you think? Well, I, I, I've been impressed with the work we've been able to accomplish under Speaker Renton. I think the budget that we've been able to pass over these last six years have moved our state forward. I think we've been able to have both budget resiliency, budget reserves, fiscal responsibility, while we continue to enhance our social safety net and improve funding towards education and climate change and transportation. Those are huge wins that we've been able to do under his leadership. And I'm grateful that I've had that experience and that time to learn. So there was a you know a pretty overwhelming vote on behalf of Revis to take over uh, you know when uh, at the end of June I think it is early July, um, and what so what is your case for wanting to undo that vote to revisit that decision? Um, easy for me it's that those who divide shouldn't be the people who are then able to unify us. Um, I believe that our caucus is still fractured, that there are members who don't feel that they've been allowed to voice or to participate meaningfully. 
And that's an area where I think as a caucus, we have to continue to have deliberations to figure out who our next leader should be. And well, I'll just, wouldn't reopening it you know, like cause a lot of you know, additional <laughs> – like, I mean, isn't can't every heal. speaker fight a bit fractious I think too? that – well, yes, and I would also say it's natural for us to have mm-hmm. these types of discussions and to continue to have these discussions. And um, I will also say that this year is markedly different than we had last year. Last year, we had a huge budget surplus, and this year we're facing a budget problem that I believe we need to uh, have those who have some experience handling. Do you, and we should say, we have repeatedly invited Assemblymember Robert Rebus on the show, um, and we still want to get him on here. He has canceled several times, but we're, we're hopeful. Um, but I do want to ask, you know, we talked a little bit about your politics. Um, there's not a lot of daylight from a policy perspective between Rendon and Rebus, honestly. And this is a pretty progressive caucus. Should, like, does that matter? Or is, is, is being leader more about personality politics? I mean, you could say Nancy Pelosi probably wasn't in line with a lot of her caucus members from more conservative states as well. I think a leader really needs to figure out where you have alignment and how you build consensus rather than how you divide. Um, it's easy to subtract and to move forward without being inclusive. It's much harder to listen and hear people and be changed by it. And to have that impact um, our decisions is what our leaders should be focused on. We have just less than a minute left, but quickly, the special session is underway in the legislature to create a penalty for excessive oil profits. Where do you think that's going to go? Well, I focus on kitchen table issues, and I am worried about the um, fact that gas is a pain point for so many Californians, especially Californians who live in rural areas like the community that I serve. And so we have to become aware of whether or not there is price gouging that's going on. And so I look forward to the conversations that come from the special session. Sounds like you're open to it, though. I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's time for us to have that discussion. All right. We always like to end with a fun question. Uh, and I noticed that you um, – we, we, we got a lot of information about your bio from your church. Just very briefly – Tell us about your church. So I, I go to the Big Red Church in Fresno. I grew up across the street from it. My parents are four houses down from it oh, wow. today. I uh, enjoy to be able to walk to church and to spend time with my young family. And it's there. literally called the Big Red Church. It's called the Big Is it, it a Big, big red, red Church? church. <laughs> <laughs> it must be a Big Red Church. All right. That was Assemblymember Joaquin Rambula of Fresno. Thank you so much for coming in Thanks today. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Jim Bennett and our producer is Guy Marzarati. I'm Scott Schaefer. Find out more of KQED's politics coverage by subscribing to our Political Breakdown newsletter. You'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. He's Scott Schaefer and I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next week. See ya. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.